Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome to an emergency episode of the Australia in the World podcast. As always, you're with Darren Lim from the ANU and Alan Gingell from the AIIA. It's late afternoon on Friday, the 8th of January right now. And Alan, while I'm not sure it is a happy new year, let's wish it to be so. So a happy new year to you. And to you, Darren. <laughs> Thank you. Now, two days ago on Wednesday the 6th, I woke up here in Lebanon, checked the news and was immediately in a terrific mood. And the reason was that by that time on Wednesday morning, my time, it seemed clear that the Democratic Party had swept the Georgia Senate runoff elections, giving Joe Biden the barest of majorities in the Senate when he takes office on the 20th of January. And this was somewhat of a surprise, but given that I'd had very mixed feelings after the November election, as we've discussed, I felt much more positive about the trajectory that the US was on, and hopefully as a result for the rest of us in the rest of the world. <laughs> so I texted you and, and and asked if you wanted to do a quick podcast to talk about the election or the elections, as well as some news from Hong Kong before leaving for your vacation Saturday, which is tomorrow. But you politely declined, saying that you wanted to focus on the book chapter that you're writing for the revised edition of your book. And I said, no worries, and, and went about my day. Now, as everyone listening will know, Wednesday the 6th was anything but a normal day in the United States as a mob of Trump supporters, explicitly incited by the president himself, stormed the US Capitol building as Congress was in session to certify the results of the presidential election. The building was put in lockdown, one protester was shot dead and another police officer subsequently died. Parts of the building were trashed as hundreds marched through. Trump had been putting pressure on Vice President Pence to orchestrate some kind of manoeuvre that would allow the election results to be reversed. Pence had refused, and ultimately Trump's efforts would be in vain. You know, Once the protesters were cleared and the building was secured, this was hours later, a joint sitting of Congress reconvened late into the night and Joe Biden's victory was confirmed. Although it should be said that I think it was more than half of the GOP House delegation and about half a dozen senators did object to the results from several key states. So, Alan, my first question to you, obviously, is how did you go writing your book chapter yesterday? Yeah, uh, well, not not good, Darren. About 6.30 in the morning, I was sitting around about to go out for some you know, morning exercise when there was a beep on my phone and I looked at the alert from the New York Times or somewhere talking about the storming of the US Congress. So I thought, oh, well, I'll just turn on CNN and just have a, have, a, have a quick look at what's going on. And that was really it. I was transfixed until you, you got in touch with me 12 hours later or something. My original plan had been to spend the day writing about Australia's specific step up, which you and I can agree is really important. But, you know, honestly, it just couldn't compete with the drama in Washington. So apart from interruptions from, you know, calls from mates and texts from people, that was my my day. I can't count the number of times I heard, as you must have, commentators saying that they never thought that they would see something like this in Washington. And I can only echo that. It was really both horrifying but also astonishing at the same time. 
But what about you? What was your reaction? You you came in sort of later in the cycle than I did, I think, because of the time difference. No, I came in earlier. So I, oh, I earlier. was watching from the very beginning. I, I okay. turned on CNN and watched a solid four hours from 8 p.m. on Wednesday night, my time, through past midnight. And I turned on pretty much as the building was getting entered. And that, you know, it was transfixing, as, as you could say. I think you know, I had two main emotions. And the main one was just incredulity, like, Everything about the spectacle mm. was unbelievable or absurd to me. You know, to begin, how on earth was security that bad, given how predictable this was? And given, given what had happened with terrorism and so on in the past. And the Trump protesters having T-shirts with a date on them saying, we're going to storm the Capitol. I just couldn't imagine how this wasn't taken more seriously. But the protesters themselves were just there was an air of ridiculousness about them. You had that guy wearing the Viking costume, another guy wearing fur. Others are waving Confederate flags. But then even as they're breaking into the building, sometimes using force to do so, there was this footage of them walking through maybe the rotunda and there were rope lines sort of segregating off where you could walk and most of them were respecting those <laughs> rope lines. And so, it, you know, there were clearly many people who were sort of just there because it was sort of, oh, this will be interesting and had no sort of real purpose for being there. So, you know, on, on some level, I, I can't dispute the fact that it was an insurrection to the extent that, you know, they were trying to prevent the legislature from performing its constitutional duty in the transfer of power. But there seemed nothing very savvy about what most of them were doing. And when inside, all that you really saw was the messing up of some officers, strewing papers all over the place. You know, not great, but not what you would expect when you think of the phrase violent insurrection like this is not what you're seeing on, on on tv and above all there just seemed to be no purpose to this you know there was nothing close to a congressional majority supporting what trump wanted to do and even if there was congress had no power to do anything so it just felt like this was just one big violent expression or semi-violent expression of mood which was of course terrifying for the legislators and the staff inside the building where lives were lost but again i just couldn't see the overall purpose but, you know, in addition to feeling incredulous about it all, you know, I still went to sleep that night very sad. And I've been, that's been the pervasive feeling for me since that it, it's just depressing and sad. And uh, anyway, now, Alan, I do want to get to the Australian angle, at least briefly, and how our leaders reacted. But I think we should talk more about the US first. We've talked a lot about the US in the past six months in particular. Does this past week, you know, change your assessment at all of the US, both as a country itself? and its likely role in the world in the short to medium term? I think it reinforces rather than changes any views I've already talked about on the podcast, Aaron. I mean, first, you know, short term, there are only days left in Trump's term. But after what we saw yesterday, anyone with any sense will be worried about what he might yet do before he leaves. Mm -hmm. I don't expect he'll be removed from office or that he'll resign. I mean, there was some speculation that he might leave a day early so that Mike Pence could offer him an all-purpose pardon. But after Pence's behaviour yesterday, he, he will feel unable to rely on that, I suppose. But he does love being at the centre of attention. So it's possible that something will yet happen on Iran or China or somewhere else and allies will need to remain alert. But even so, the scale of the chaos yesterday probably makes it harder for him to get away with anything. The fact that both Pence and Mitch McConnell and now Mitch McConnell's wife, who's one of his cabinet members, have distanced themselves so far from Trump 
suggests that. And in any case, the, the events seem likely to go some way to bringing forward the inevitable contest between Trumpism and the Republican Party. Now, that was always going to happen at some point because ambitious politicians with their eyes set on 2024 were not going to want their way blocked by Trump and his family. But I thought what we'd see would be a, a sort of a, a year or so's careful you know, standoff mm. first. Now I'm not so sure. Although, as you were you were saying, you could still see from the size of those House of Representatives votes on certifying the Electoral College returns that there's still a you know sizable Trumpist rump in the party. So that's short term, but medium term, it's we've been talking about before. I think it's going to have the effect of ensuring that Biden's interests and priorities and focus remain centrally on domestic politics rather than foreign affairs. You know, getting the pandemic under control, coping with its economic consequences, those are going to be absolutely central for him. And so will the need to address social inequality, including questions of race. So short of an unasked for crisis, which, you know, Kim Jong-un could always deliver to us, <laughs> the room for foreign policy will be very limited, I think. Now, that's not all mm. bad news because international issues, apart from climate change, which will be central for him, will probably be outsourced to cabinet members and officials, and he's going to have some very good ones, and he's going to trust them, unlike Trump. But the some you know, result of that is that we just shouldn't be sitting around waiting for directions from Washington over the next four years. Now, what about you? Yeah, because through our discussions over the past four, four years, you've taken a relatively optimistic view of the United States throughout Trump's presidency. So still optimistic, Darren? I am, yeah. Look, things can always get worse. And I think I have a problem that as an outsider looking in, you have to be very careful because if you agree that this was a full-fledged insurrection and a historic crisis for the United States, then you might also be agreeing that this is inevitably weakening America significantly on the world stage and diminishing it. But if you play this down as being a bunch of slightly over-enthusiastic protesters with grievances, you're ignoring the significant toxins that are poisoning the US from the inside. But let me try and walk that line and, and find an optimistic take. My hope is that down the track, this will be seen more as an embarrassment to the US and a stark reminder of its challenges, but not a major or significant threat to its institutional foundations. I mean, if there had been that significant or sufficient police presence there, you know, the protesters would have raged outside. They might have even raised some nooses or something, done a little bit of damage on the outside. But we wouldn't be having this conversation. Yeah, as I'd done earlier in Washington. Yes. Yeah, so this, to me, first and foremost, is a failure of law enforcement. It doesn't really say much more than that. But even having said that, given this failure, it's still remarkable to me that it didn't descend into a, a shootout. Yes, we had a woman who was shot dead. We've had just had a, reports that a police officer did die from injuries, both of which are awful. But overall, to me, there still was a a surprising amount of restraint shown. And this is by both sides, the protesters and the police, in not turning this into a gunfight in one of the most gun-saturated places on earth. Now, 
This is not to dismiss the underlying causes of the policing failure and the institutional rot, which is likely behind the obvious double standards when you contrast the response to the Black Lives Matter protests over the summer. And this is not to excuse Trump himself. You know, I think he should be removed from office for inciting this, failing to tamp it down once it began, and lying repeatedly about the election. But when I zoom out or try to zoom out, you know, I, I see US institutions gradually, albeit painfully, excruciatingly painfully, processing the removal of a historically unpopular and destructive president who still has a major support base. But doing so without mass political violence, without civil war, and with the military, you know, who have the biggest guns, staying out of it. That, that is, but think about it, that, that is not actually saying all that much, Darren. you congratulating the American democracy for, for, for changing government without having the army out in the streets, aren't you? I am responding to the language of insurrection and yeah. sedition and that, look, if we hold the US to the standards that it's upheld you know, for the last hundred years, although, of course, there are instances in history where there has been violence in the capital, you know, where political leaders have been assassinated. So this isn't the first time the US has had to deal with this. So, you know, I guess it's a question of glass half empty or, or glass half full. It's still true that a good fifth of the population supports what the protesters did and will support Trump no matter what. You know, you've got those craven politicians in the GOP who, who played with fire by contesting the election results, as you discussed, Alan. And you've got a media ecosystem that has fed lie upon lie to these people for decades. And yes, they still have their guns and things can always get worse. But again, glass half full now, Trump has failed. He lost an election he probably should have won. His subsequent pressure to try and change the outcome was resisted by his own vice president, by the Senate majority leader and other GOP leaders. And let's not forget, we have this election result the day before in Georgia, a red state that has sent two Democratic senators to Washington. So that means that when Joe Biden enters office, he'll be able to install a cabinet and staff of his choosing across the senior levels of government with much less fuss than he would have otherwise and set about the rebuilding of the institutions of governance that had been so degraded in the past four years. And I think in many ways, making government competent and functioning again is the most important thing he can do in, in, in the short term. You know, I said a while ago that when we're considering the fate of democracy, it's the second election that matters. And we've had two now, I suppose, since 2016, the 2018 midterms and, and 2020. And Trump lost both. And he's losing power by the second. You can feel it. It's quite remarkable. You know, he's been deplatformed by Facebook. He was blocked by Twitter or suspended by Twitter. He's having more and more GOP colleagues denounce him. And, and that's true also of the broader conservative universe turning on him. Not fully, but certainly partially. So you can see that power ebb away. Now, of course, even once he leaves office, he's not going to go away entirely. But he will be a diminished figure. So, look, that is my half full interpretation and let's not let's hope that the next 10 days don't prove me completely wrong yeah. <laughs> anyway before we get to australia alan another question uh, sort of about the, the world angle i saw that you know turkey had urged restraint and common sense <laughs> venezuela had condemned the spiral of violence <laughs> and the president of iran uh, had stated that quote what happened in the u.s shows how weak western democracy is and then we turn to China, and we had the Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson wondering why 
the US would describe the events on Capitol Hill as an insurrection while praising the protesters who stormed the LegCo in Hong Kong last year. So with all that in mind, Alan, how do you see the optics of this playing out around the world in a contest, if you will, between democracy and autocracy or liberalism against illiberalism? It's a reminder that it's too simple to see a contest between democracy and autocracy, because particularly in a time of pandemic, there's also a contest going on between capability and incompetence. And that Mm. simply cuts across the liberal-illiberal divide. Australia's been pretty competent. The US has not in many respects. Vietnam has been pretty competent. Russia has not. So I think what we're, we're seeing now does, though, play into a sense that the US, for all its great strengths, has some real underlying problems of governance, and those have been magnified but not entirely caused by the four years of Trump. The image of America as a, you know, the can-do country has been threatened, and I think that's going to persist, which is why the point you made before about Biden, I think, is important. The necessity to make government competent, again, is going to have international as well as domestic ramifications for, Mm. for the U.S., yeah, the, the angle that interests me, actually, is the China one, because I had, if we had done a normal podcast this week, I'd wanted to talk about China and, and in particular, what's been happening in Hong Kong. As we've discussed in previous episodes, China or Beijing promulgated a, a national security law last year, which has seen the crackdown on political opposition and many liberal freedoms in Hong Kong you know, in the past six months. But in this past week, what we saw was the arrest of, of more than 50 activists, um, which I saw described as you know almost an entire generation of politicians being arrested. And their alleged crime is subversion. But the thing they did to commit it, allegedly, was simply the participation in an informal primary election process last year to select candidates for an upcoming legislative election that ended up being cancelled anyway because of the, of the pandemic. And so if you draw that contrast, can you imagine Joe Biden arresting scores of GOP politicians because they tried to disrupt his governing agenda? You know, of course, the storming of the Capitol looks terrible and it will be a talking point for many a propaganda victory, you might say, for opponents of liberalism. But again, glass half full, being hopeful, you know, I want to believe that this is demonstrating some degree of inherent strength of, of US political institutions that will sustain damage. I mean, for one thing, it's clear that the US Capitol building itself is going to have to become a much more closed and secure space, which is sad. You know, it was a place you could walk in and you could sort of walk into the up to the offices of, of, of legislators. So that's sad. But I still think, you know, that there are, there are reasons to, to see this, again, I guess, through an optimistic lens rather than a, an exclusively pessimistic one. Yeah, maybe, maybe. I'm, I'm just not so sure about the inherent strengths of US political institutions as we've been talking about. I mean, democracies can't stay static. They need to refresh themselves or just like autocracies or monarchies, they too can become calcified and can crack. And I think Biden knows that. One of his few specific foreign policy commitments has been to convene a summit for democracy after he's elected. So there's going to be a lot to talk about there, including American democracy. 
Yes, I, I agree on the need to refresh it, although the irony is that it's going to be led by a, someone who's almost 80, who's been in, in, in Congress for a better part of a half century. And I, as we've discussed in the past, there are these three interrelated problems. One is the economic challenge, and, and whether you characterise that as a failure of neoliberalism or maybe the disruptive impact of technology, you do have these stagnating middle-class and lower-middle-class incomes and the resulting economic grievances that have come from that and, and fueled much of populism. Two, you've got the cultural and social cohesion challenges as power within society is being rebalanced, especially racially in the, in the United States, while buffeted by global forces, you know, and of all this refracted through social media. And third, you've got this competition with systems with China, you know, and the framing of many economic issues through national security lenses. So yes, Democracies have got a lot to talk about in the year and in the years ahead, and these are challenges that all democracies are going to face, not just the United States. Yeah, there's an interesting slip there. You you were talking about summit for democracies, and I've sometimes seen what Biden has promised as being a summit of democracies, but the latest formulation is, I think, a summit for democracy. Because that, that then helps you avoid the issue that there is really no clear sharp dividing line between democracies on the one hand and autocracies on the other. We're all on a spectrum somewhere and have things to to learn. Mm. I'm reminded of, I think I've mentioned him recently, actually, there's a, a Portuguese politician, former politician and, and now public intellectual named Bruno Machais. And one of the interesting points, he's written, he's written about five books in the last five years and his most recent one is on the United States. But one of the points he has made on podcasts that I've heard him speak on is that one of the weaknesses of of many European democracies is that they are so incremental and they don't have the capacity to solve big social problems in any meaningful way. That's built into the system that things move very slowly. And a lot of the biggest problems, and this especially I think is thinking about issues of race and, and culture, are sort of pushed to the side. They're marginalized. And then they kind of metastasize in in the form of far-right populism and extremist behavior and, and often in, in violence. And he actually, as though, I know his wife is Turkish, so perhaps this, this influences how he thinks about that, but he's actually praised Turkey for being a political system that is grappling with the biggest questions facing Turkish society. And I guess that is the role of Islam and, and I guess the extent to which they want to be open and free, that you might criticize them as not being a democracy, but he praises them as being a political system that is grappling with these face-on, and that in all its, its with warts and all, I suppose. And I, maybe, I'd, I'm not sure, but on that line, maybe that you could be more optimistic about the United States and that the way in which its system is structured allows these things to bubble up much more easily. Yeah. Look, again, I'm trying to be optimistic, but it's an interesting thing worth thinking about for how democracies can grapple with the biggest challenges when that's not actually how they're built you know, to operate. All right, let's finish up quickly and talk about Australia. In response to these events, Prime Minister Morrison tweeted, quote, very distressing scenes at the US Congress. We condemn these acts of violence and look forward to a peaceful transfer of government to the newly elected administration in the great American democratic tradition, end quote. He declined to criticise Trump himself or even condemn a handful of coalition MPs that have been sharing pro-Trump conspiracy theories. Foreign Minister Payne tweeted, quote, very concerned by scenes at the US Congress. I condemn any violence to interfere with democratic processes. 
This will not impede the transfer of power. US institutions are robust and its democratic strength resides in the full breadth of its people who are no part of this violence, end quote. And our ambassador in DC, Arthur Sinodin, has retweeted both of these tweets, but I can't find anything else that he's explicitly said himself. And I just want to draw a contrast with those two statements with that of German Chancellor Angela Merkel, who said that the images made her angry and sad, and also to quote, a grand rule of democracy is that after elections there are winners and losers. Both have their role to play with decency and responsibility so that democracy itself remains the winner. I regret very much that President Trump not acknowledge his defeat since November and also not yesterday. Doubts about the election outcome were stirred and create the atmosphere that made the events of last night possible, end quote. So, Alan, I just wanted you quickly to ask you or to talk through the tightrope that faces Australia's leaders in a time like this. I mean, do you wish the, the PM had expressed slightly stronger sentiments like Merkel did? Or sentiments closer to Boris Johnson, who's now madly trying to make up for his earlier Trumpophilia mm. before Joe Biden comes to town. Should Morrison have said more? I think he and Maurice Payne might have said something that sounded a bit less ponderously bureaucratic. But on the, on the whole, no. Nothing the Australian Prime Minister said would have changed much. It's not particularly helpful for him to be a commentator. So from my point of view anyway, Loki was okay. Mm. And what, I mean, do these events, do you think, move the needle in, in the bowels of Canberra about, you know, the future of the alliance? I mean, is there some contingency planner? Some are asking you know, even stronger what-if questions about the future of American democracy. Well, a needle in the bowel sounds both <laughs> painful, Darren. Uh, does it shift views on American democracy in, in Canberra? Look, I'm, I'm sure it prompts concern, and I'm sure that analysts in ONI and diplomats in DFAT are thinking hard about what it means, but I'd be pretty confident that it won't generate any lasting uncertainty about the stability of the alliance, and I contrast this with another four years of Trump, because I really do think that if Trump had been re-elected, that, that would have put the alliance under, under really severe stress. The test now is whether the system as a whole recovers. So was it Trump who was the blip, or will it be Biden who's the blip and we come back to something Trumpy? in four years' time. So it, it's probably going to be four years before we can tell. So people are thinking, I'm sure, but I don't, I don't think they're yet lying, tossing and turning at night, worrying about the alliance. Yeah, I, and maybe it gets down to that sort of roughly half of the GOP electorate who don't approve of what happened, yeah. but who did see Trump deliver to them meaningful benefits. You know, those now infamous Hispanic voters in the Rio Grande Valley in Texas who just thought that he had you know, made their lives a bit better. I mean, I guess, how much attention are they paying to this? You know, how much, mm. are, they, how many, are they drawing conclusions about the future of democracy? I mean, probably not. But having said that, if Biden can get $2,000 worth of Biden bucks into their bank accounts with a check with, you know, signed by him, as Trump had wanted to do, then maybe you need to do those things, uh, you know, what might be questionable economic policies, but to, to sustain the overall legitimacy. I mean, I, there was just one, one I, I'm getting really off, off topic here, but there was one remarkable ad in the Georgia runoffs, and it was from one of the Democratic candidates. I think it was 
Reverend Warnock. And it basically was a picture of a, of a $2,000 check. And it said, if you want your $2,000 check, vote for me. Yeah. And the, the economist in me, you know, who's heard people like Larry Summers say that it's not a good idea to, to give more money out in a mostly untargeted way. So I, I, I do worry, but I also worry right now more than inflation. I worry about political legitimacy. I worry about the stability of the Republic. And so in this, you know, third or fourth best world, maybe some less than optimal economic policies might be needed. Now, again, slippery slope and all, but these are the things I think about. (laughs) A big concession from an economist, Darren. Good on you. (laughs) Yeah, political scientist, former economist. Anyway, look, last question, Alan, and I'm thinking back to your book chapter and what on earth you're going to write. You know, you said your purpose was to try to make sense of the past four years. And I'm guessing this past week has complicated that task even further. Mm. So, I mean, I guess, do you have any parting thoughts? And, and maybe can I frame it as this specific question? You know, we all know of Ronald Reagan's famous phrase as he left office in January of, of 1989, where he defined a vision of, of a, quote, shining city upon a hill. And he said, quote, in my mind, it was a tall, proud city built on rocks, stronger than oceans, windswept, God-blessed, and teeming with people of all kinds, living in harmony and peace, a city with three ports that hummed with commerce and creativity. And if there had to be city walls, the walls had doors, and the doors were open to anyone with the will and the heart to get here. So, Alan, is that shining light forever dimmed by these past four years and, and this past week? Well, it certainly doesn't sound like Donald Trump, does it? Reagan was drawing on a famous sermon by the Puritan leader John Winthrop before his group of settlers sailed out to Massachusetts Bay in 1630. And Winthrop was explaining how the new community, which was going to emerge from their covenant with God, should operate. We must consider, he said, that we shall be as a city upon a hill. And the next sentence that he he said was important, that the eyes of all people are upon us. Now, I was glad you asked that question because I always knew that my third-year University of Melbourne course on Puritanism in Old and New England would come in useful someday, and here it is. Uh, Anyway, this goes to the core of American exceptionalism. And I was thinking about it this morning because I was listening to The Daily, you know, the New York Times, Mm -hmm. you know, excellent podcast on yesterday's events. And one of the Times journalists just, you know, reporting on the events described the insurrectionists as being responsible for desecrating the capital. And that sort of really, really struck me because desecration is a sacrilegious treatment of a sacred site. So here in Australia, if someone slapped graffiti all over the Hall of Remembrance at the War Memorial, we might say it was desecration. But I don't think it's a word we would use to describe vandalism at Parliament House, however concerned we were about it. And it was a reminder of how many leaders of the United States we've heard in the past few days using language like Reagan's or like you know, Lincoln's the last best hope of earth about the American system, but we know it's it's not true. As democracies go, Australia's may be plainly wrapped. Few of us, and certainly not me, could quote from the Constitution. 
But in its effectiveness and inclusiveness with compulsory voting and, you know, the democracy sausage sizzle uh, on election day and the unimpeachable role of the Australian Electoral Commission in drawing up electoral boundaries, I'd stack it up against America's any day. And I guess many people around the world will be feeling the same way. So the light from the shining city may be a bit dimmed, but if the challenge to address the problems in the polity are met, and interestingly, one of Biden's primary challenges and soon to be one of his cabinet appointees, Pete Buttigieg, has thought hard and interestingly about these questions, including the setting of electoral borders. So I think they can get the generator cranked up again. Okay, Alan, well, thanks for that. Final note of optimism. Do you have anything, any recommendations for us today, even though we weren't really prepared for it? Yeah, no, look, I I do because I wanted to end up not just on that note of optimism, but another more uplifting and hopeful note. After the week America has had, it's worth reminding ourselves that they can actually rebuild the democracy. And I was watching, before all this happened, a new documentary on Amazon Prime called All In, the Fight for Democracy, which is a history of voter suppression and features some of the work of Stacey Abrams, who more than any other person may have been responsible for getting Biden and the Democrats those two crucial Senate seats in Georgia. So that's worth watching. Great. Thanks, Alan. For me, the most interesting commentary I've read in the past 36 hours has come from the right of centre, the conservative side of the US, but not from the Never Trumpers. But instead, those conservatives who have made great efforts, I think, in the past four years to understand the causes of Trump and believed that unconditional opposition to him was counterproductive. And many of them are are surprisingly, maybe not surprisingly, but they are angry now. And I'll post to by some of the smartest intellectuals that that I follow. And one is uh, Matthew Continenti and the other is Yuval Levin. I think they're both at the American Enterprise Institute, amongst others. So I'll, I'll post those short commentary pieces to the show notes to give the listeners a bit of a flavour of, you know, smart people on the right are saying about what happened. Okay, well, that's all for today's emergency episode of Australia in the World. As always, we thank AIIA intern Mitchell McIntosh for his help in editing today's episode and Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. And we'll chat to you again, hopefully in calmer times, after the 20th of January. Talk to you then. Bye.